is possible to become free from debt, financial worry, your boss, and your zip code. You can start living a life you love, but first, you need to find your freedom. Using financial independence and lifestyle design principles, you can create the life of your dreams now. There are many paths to freedom, and that is what this podcast is all about. My name is Becky from 20free.co, and I am the host of the Find Your Freedom podcast. Today, I'm interviewing Danielle Desir, an author, speaker, podcaster, and founder of The Thought Card, an award-winning affordable travel finance blog and podcast, empowering financially savvy travelers to make informed financial decisions, travel more, pay off debt, and build wealth. Danielle paid off $63,000 of student loan debt in four years and purchased her first home at the age of 27. She has traveled to 27 countries and four continents and strongly believes in not letting your financial responsibilities hold you back from pursuing your dreams. Danielle shares strategies for affording travel and finding time to travel with a full-time job. We also discuss how to use the emotional side of money to your advantage, how to balance saving for different goals, and important mindset shifts to save more for travel. Welcome to Find Your Freedom, Danielle. Thank you so much for having me, Becky. Thanks for being here. So first, I wanted to talk about your background. Tell me a little bit about how your personal experiences have shaped your perspectives on money and life. Yes. So I would say that my family, uh, my mom was a single mom. So that is a huge factor in terms of like how I saw finances growing up, just having one income. However, she was very transparent about finances, very adamant about saving. I even started investing at the age of 15, had my first retirement account. So I had a lot of financial acumen early on. My mom's also an accountant and my dad is also an accountant as well. So I just love all things numbers and data and and all of that. So that really was my backing growing up. And I would say for me, my lens, a lot of it is through travel as well. So I grew up going to Haiti every summer. My family is from Haiti originally. And I would go back every summer to enjoy enjoy my family, enjoy my grandparents. That's where I learned the language, really understood the culture. And that for me was my first introduction to travel. And as an adult, I've been finding creative ways to make sure that my finances align with my goals. And one of my goals is making sure that I'm able to travel. So it's so interesting how from a young age, all these things were kind of percolating in the background. And now as an adult, I'm definitely seeing, you know, how money impacts our ability to travel and really just pursue all the things that we want in our life as well. Yeah, it's really interesting to see how our childhood experiences do inform our experiences as young adults and adults and the things that we like and the things that we want to do. I loved what you were saying about how your goals, you know, aligning with your financial actions is really important. And I would love to get into that a little bit later about how you align those two things in your life, your money and your travel. But first, I'd love to talk about you had an investment account when you were 15. How did that come about? And were you able to kind of test it out and try it out and learn about investing? Did you have someone guiding you? How did that look? 
Yes. So my mom had taken some course at NYU at the time, and it was taught by a investment banker and he had a hedge fund and all that. So she had pretty much like access to uh, this instructor. And we actually started off, well, at least for me, I started off my retirement accounts under under that management company. So it was very hands off, but every time I got a paycheck from my movie theater job, I would put a little bit of money in that. And I think my mom was excited about retirement for me because she knew how much I can save and invest and just earn because I'm so young and starting at such a young age. Uh, So that was really, really exciting to her. And uh, also at the time, this was when Wells Fargo was Wachovia and they had a lot of like high yielding CD accounts. So as soon as I was able to like start saving over a thousand dollars, I was able to add my fine, you know, add my funds into a, a CD account, which had maybe five, six percent interest and six months to a year later, I had even more money. So that was really, really exciting. So those were two of the introductory vehicles that I use when it came to, you know, investing a bit, saving a bit. And that was, of course, through my mom. That's a great financial education to have at such a young age. And to be able to save $1,000, you know, when you're young, that seems like so much money, right? I remember I worked in a food service job and I made like five to $7 an hour, I think, over the entire time that I did it. And so $1,000 was like a million dollars to a 15 year old, right? So you were able to put that money and see a return on investment in those CDs and in your investment accounts. That's great. And so you worked at the movie theater. Tell me a little bit more about your early financial life. What kind of working experience and, and education did you get? Yeah. So again, because I was living in a single family household, my mom gave me everything I ever wanted and more. But by the time I was like 15, 16, I was like, I kind of want my own independence and I wanted to get my my first job. And my first job was actually a Boscov's retail, like kind of like showcase person kind of thing. But my movie theater job at AMC Theater was actually my first job. And I believe it was like something like 775 an hour. And I actually kept that job until I finished my undergrad because it was just really easy every time you come back home for Christmas break or summer break they would definitely hire you back on because they know your work ethic and at the end of my high school career I was able to save five thousand dollars because at the end of the day like how many Jordan sneakers or how many like Abercrombie and Fitch like outfits do you really need you know so I would definitely I think I was definitely stylish back then because I had a job and I didn't have to ask my mom for stuff But besides that, a lot of it just went to savings because I had a lot of excess. That's great. $5,000 at the end of high school is such an amazing amount of money to save. You know, I'm just contrasting that to my own experience with like, I finally had money and I was like, I'm going to spend all of this. You know, I do need all of those clothes. You know, I do need all of those things that when I wanted my independence, I found it through spending on things that I wanted, which eventually evolved into values-based spending. And I got the shopping out of my system as a young adult. But, you know, I could see that you had just such a, a strong drive to save and invest and work really hard. So that's that's really great to hear. Now, you did your undergrad. You also have a master's degree, right? And what, what was your education in? 
Yes. So when I was actually in high school and all in middle school, I always wanted to be a doctor. And I knew that medical school was going to be on the horizon for me. But my mom said, that's wonderful, honey. But I think you need a plan B just in case if things don't really work out in medicine, because she knew exactly how difficult it was. So she recommended that I do business instead and not management because she considered that like a quote unquote soft skill, air quotes, soft skills. She said, you know, why don't you do something like accounting or finance? And I'm like, I don't really like accounting, but I can do finance. I can swing that. So I was the very unique individual in undergrad that was pre-med in all the science classes, but also pursuing an undergrad in undergraduate degree in business finance, business administration. And I kind of played that in a way that I was like, I wanted to be the doctor that uh, had business skills. I wanted to own my own practice. So it just made sense. Interestingly enough, after undergrad, I started to study for the MCAT exam and I just couldn't crack that nut. I was just having so much difficulty just studying for the exam and I had to make a really big decision if medicine was really for me. However, the summer prior, I had done an internship at a medical school where I was learning more about healthcare administration and the folks who were doing a lot of the business operations in like medical institutions and hospitals not necessarily practitioners. And I really liked it. And I said, you know what? Because I already have a finance background, it's easy for me to just slide into this role as a hospital administrator. So I decided to actually give up medicine and I pursued my master's in healthcare administration. And it's perfect for me now because I am a grants manager and I technically use both of my degrees, uh, healthcare administration and uh, my finance degree, even though finance is like very different from personal finance, I would say. Right. That's really interesting to hear about that change in career path, but it really ended you up in a really similar place, right? You're still working in that area of interest and using your skills in in finance and your undergraduate degree. Now, when you graduated from college, did you have any student debt? Oh, yes. So I had about 20000 in undergrad. And 20,000 in undergrad, that was with me getting so many scholarships. Like I was a New York lottery scholarship recipient. I had like sororities who gave me lots of scholarships and other things. So I had a lot of funding. However, I still accumulated $20,000 of student loan debt, which for me still is a lot of money. And then I went off to grad school and I accumulated about 43,000 in graduate school. And I actually did an accelerated program. So it could have been a lot more if it was a full two-year program. And 63 was my ending amount. And I figured out what my daily interest was on that balance. And it was $10.10 per day. And that's really what uh, inspired me to take action because I was just so angry that I just took out all this money and I had no job, no way of paying this back at the time. Yeah, I can relate to having that feeling about wanting to pay back my student loans, but I never even got to the point of calculating how much money it was costing me. I think that's a really smart tip is to see if you're looking at it day by day, how much money carrying this debt is costing you. And you're saying, oh, that's $10 a day. If I pay it off, I get that $10 a day back. And then you can scale up to the the monthly, you know, and say, okay, so that's $300 a month. I could use 300 bucks a month for something besides debt. You know, I, I really like that mentality that you had there. So how did you pay off this debt? And what kind of time frame did you pay off your debt in? Yeah, so I paid off my 63K in four years and it took a lot of grind. It took a lot of 
hustle, but not in like side hustle, but just hustling in terms of being creative and trying to throw as much money possible at my debt. It's so funny because at the time, I had just started my blog in 2015 and I was just understanding the term side hustle. I didn't even, maybe it was like just introducing that term at the time. So I didn't even have like a second job or anything like that to like add supplement my income. But for me, it was about making lifestyle decisions. So one of the big decisions I have to make was, am I going to live in New York city? Cause that's where my job is and, you know, live a fabulous lifestyle Or am I going to live at home with mom for the foreseeable future, which actually took four years to finish and, you know, throw as much money as possible at it. So that was one of the things that I did, staying at home with my mom. And even if that's not possible for folks who are listening in, there are lots of ways that you can reduce your living expenses and living expenses is usually the most one of the most expensive expenses that you have. So trying your best to reduce those very um, high ticket expenses are really, that's critical to, for me, at least paying off my debt. And then what I also did is I use my daily interest rate as a tracker. Since I knew my initial $10.10, I wanted to continuously track that. And over time, I would gradually see it go down to 8, 10, 7, 10, 5, 10 until it was down to zero. So having something that I could track was super helpful. Uh, The last thing I did, I would say, is that I really tried to understand what my debt payment style is. Am I the kind of person that wants to be like fiscally smart, which means I want to tackle the debt with the highest interest? It doesn't matter how big or small that debt is. Or am I really going to focus on the quick wins, which means that I'm going to focus on the smaller balances first and build momentum from there. And I realized that I was really building my my strengths in uh, paying down the smaller debts first. Like I thrive off quick wins. I want to feel like I'm moving forward. Saving and paying off debt is an emotional, it's very emotional and very taxing. So every time I would pay off something, I would celebrate. um, And that really helped me to move forward and not see 63,000 as like this huge number that I can't tackle. Yeah, I think that psychological part of debt payoff is really important and testing out and finding out how you react to things. It makes financial sense or mathematical sense to maybe approach it from the highest interest rate first. But if you're going to get discouraged or you're not going to be motivated because you're looking at a huge pile of high interest debt, right, rather than, say, paying off a $500 debt that it's at a low interest rate, you have to do what works for you. The same thing with investing is psychological and, and money is emotional. We we can't extricate how we feel and how we react to things when it comes to money because that drives everything. But that can be a good thing, too. I mean, in terms of what you value and really putting yourself all in towards getting something done, like paying off debt or towards incorporating travel as part of your lifestyle. I mean, you can use those emotional aspects to your benefit to make sure that your money is a tool that's helping you live your ideal life. Yeah, for sure. Whenever I feel some type of emotion when it comes to money, I'm like, okay, I'm onto something here. So initially for my debt was anger. I felt really angry about me having all this debt. So I use that anger and transform that into taking action. Um, And even for me, I wouldn't say as a homeowner now that I'm angry, I'm more wise to have known like the power and freedom of not having debt and what my finances could look like without debt. So for me, the emotions for my mortgage are more like, happiness. Like I'm really, really excited and really, really happy. But again, like you mentioned, it takes some trial and error. 
understanding where you are, trying different things and trying different strategies. And also when I was paying off my debt, I would read stories of people who paid off their debt in like a fast amount of time because that inspired me. And there's tons of stories out there like that. So I was looking for like inspiration, looking for tips. And where travel comes in is that travel is actually one of the only things that I actually kept in my budget that was like a fun thing to do. So even though I would like not do a lot of things, not live like a lavish lifestyle, but I would still regularly save for travel, which was like that one thing that I knew that I definitely did not want to give up. And I totally deserved. I think a lot of people when they're paying off their debt, they feel like they have to pick one or the other. It's all or nothing. And I'm more of a multifaceted saver. So I say, okay, I'm going to work on this. I have like a couple pots boiling at the same time. But again, because I'm a quick win person. So I want to see progress. And that actually works really well for me. So you had several different things that you were focusing on with your money at the same time. You were paying off your debt. You were saving for travel. Were you also investing and were you also saving for a home? Yes, I was doing all of those four things at the same time. The investing part was primarily through my employer. So we have a 403B program. So I was doing that through a 403B. I have definitely increased and now I'm actually on my road to maximizing my 403B. But early on, I was just trying to be consistent with like a couple hundred dollars a month every month from my employer. So that was that was the most of my um, investing there. So because I was living at home with my mom, I needed to have an exit strategy, right? Like I, I also didn't want to be the kind of person that's like, okay, you spend four years paying off this debt and then you spend two years saving for a house and then you spend two years saving for your furniture. I was like, no, okay, let's not do all that. So in the midst of me paying off my debt, I took a small, very small amount of money and I started saving that and using that for my down payment. So after the four years, I already had the down payment money that I needed. I actually had it maybe in like two and a half, three years actually. So it's kind of just sitting there waiting for me to like, you know, make, take the leap and take the next step. But again, that's just how I think because I like to do multiple things at the same time. But I could have maybe been done with my debt faster because it took me four years with all of these things happening, right? But if I was only doubling down on my debt, it could have taken me two years or three years. So that's something that you have to grapple with and really determine like, do you want to be the kind of person that just focuses on one thing and then move on to the next thing? Or do you want to have a lot of different pots burning? And it may take you a little bit longer to actually reach all of those goals. Definitely. I see that there's such a spectrum of approaches, right? I I think there's the really strict, you know, one after another kind of approach. You become debt free and then you save, you know, your emergency fund and then you save for your home and then you do everything like stepwise. Then you start maxing out your retirement accounts. But I find that the most common thing is a hybrid approach of, of many different forms, right? Your hybrid approach was having kind of those four main buckets that you were saving for and you had a vision for after you paid off your debt, you would also have the money to move out and buy a home and you'd also be able to travel while you were doing this. So whatever approach helps you reach your goals, I think is the one that's right for you. You know, we can so easily look at all these articles that we see online of, you know, someone paid off their debt in a year and it was this huge, huge number. But we do have to keep in mind that that might not be what we're going to do because we also want to be saving for something else or we also have an expense that maybe they didn't have. Figuring out what works for you and letting yourself 
be okay with having a couple of different things going at the same time. I mean, ultimately, I do recommend that most people invest at least a little bit while they're paying off debt, just because as young adults, we have so much time ahead of us for that compound interest to take action on our money and help it grow. So besides that, building a habit is really important. And it sounds like you were not only building your habit of paying off debt and saving money, but you were also investing. All of those things, you know, can really be done at the same time. And I think your story is a perfect example of that. Yes. And I also agree with the building the habit because what's interesting, I think everything compounds on itself because I was used to for four years paying down my debt. I knew exactly the kind of commitment it took to pay my mortgage now. And I actually made an even swap. It, it was great. It was like, you know, debt done, mortgage came in and it was literally like the same amount every single month. So that was great. But I had the habit, I had built the muscle over four years to be consistent and throw money at this one thing so that when it, I was a now a homeowner, more responsible and higher stakes too, because a mortgage is definitely constructed differently than a student loan debt payment, that I was super uh, well prepared. Um, and also with the retirement, when you have your employer taking that out automatically, you learn to live with less. You learn to live with less. And I actually try to bump it up every six months, like bump it up by 100 or bump it up by $50 and see, okay, am I feeling it this time? I don't feel anything. Okay, let's bump it up another six months. So there's a lot of things that you can do. And again, you just learn to adapt and live within your means. Yeah, when you were saying bumping up your contributions, that made me think a really great tactic that you can use is when you get raises, you can actually just adjust your retirement contributions to basically suck up that whole raise so that your paychecks look the same. The amount of money that you're getting is going to be the same, but ultimately you're saving more for retirement. And since that's coming off the top of your paycheck and you've automated it completely, you're not feeling the loss of that money. You're not seeing it flow in and then back out of your bank account. And I think that's a really cool kind of trick to get us to be able to save that money without feeling, you know, the burn or the sacrifice. Yeah. And also if you have a 401k or a 403b, for me, it was the best decision as a vehicle for investing because it's like it's tax deductible. So it, that's not really affecting your tax return for the year. So I was like, that's great. OK, then I know there's a lot of people that says, you know, you can max that out and then move on to other vehicles as well. But for me, I definitely uh, knew that I wanted to make sure to reduce my taxable income every single year. So that was a really good benefit. And uh, again, like I said, it was just it's very, very humble beginnings when it came to that. Uh, but again, over time, I was able to bump it up and really increase it over time. That's great. And you mentioned that you're going to be paying off your mortgage early. What does your timeline look like on that? <sighs> okay, so I think like it's easier to, it was easier for me to visualize the debt payment. Like I actually had a spreadsheet and I could tell you the day because I had it all mapped out. So for my mortgage, I've been actually using, uh, Dave Ramsey has like a mortgage calculator. So from time to time, I go in there and plug my numbers and I see more of like, how many years am I shaving off? So that is for me, my mind frame and what I'm looking at tracking. I am also trying not to be too super like, only focusing on that right now. It's also really hard when you're a homeowner, you have home maintenance costs. If you have a family, you have family costs. So this is something that I am adamant about, but it's also, again, not the only thing that I'm focused on. 
but I do use like the Dave Ramsey mortgage calculator to see how far I've come. And actually, so I'm approaching my three year anniversary mark and I'm close to $20,000 of my mortgage principal paid off. So I'm pretty happy about that because this is not something, again, this is not the only thing I'm focusing on, but some of the strategies that I've used that have been really helpful have been, there's some months, I think like last month in May, we had three paychecks because I get paid bi-weekly. So I literally have one extra mortgage payment, full extra mortgage payment in my my house fund there. So I just go ahead and, and throw that at it. So that has been really, really helpful. So I think right now I'm three to four years ahead of 30, 30 year mortgage. So it's a lot slower, but, and it's a lot more than my, my student loan, but I feel really good that I can look back and say over the past three years, I've paid close to $20,000 off. That's great. Yeah. That's a huge milestone and kind of like your psychology is around celebrating your small wins and making sure that you're taking the time to reflect on the progress that you have made. And that's important for everyone. Even if you don't think that that's, you know, a main driver in your psychology for me, I can like steamroll past any wins and say on to the next thing, but it's super helpful and super gratifying for me to stop and say for a second, wow, looking back, you know, like $20,000, that's so much money. And being able to congratulate myself and, and take a moment to tell someone else, like tell my partner, hey, did you know that we paid, you know, such and such off? And just, just kind of bask in that just for a little bit. I think a lot of people who try to pay off debt really quickly, who are paying off their mortgages early, they tend to be super driven by these goals. But so much so that we can kind of just be just not as excited about reaching those goals because we kind of knew we were going to get there. I think it's really great to be able to celebrate those things for ourselves. Yes, for sure. And I think having a mortgage and seeing that, okay, this is like six figures of debt. It's a lot. It's a lot to want to tackle. But again, like I say, I I think about, okay, looking at my budget and I see how much extra can I throw at it this month? And I try to regulate it. So again, so it's part of my lifestyle and I'm not feeling these huge fluctuations from month to month. So I may pick, let's say $100 extra throwing at my mortgage every month over the course of the year. That's really great. And if you couple in again, having like an extra mortgage payment that you have automatically built in since you get paid bi-weekly, you'll just start to see a lot of these things like steamrolling. Um, and the other thing I would say again, like when you're a homeowner, there's a lot of different things that you're responsible for. Like I literally had my fuel tank, which is like out the door. I call them and they're like, it's $3,000. I was like, oh really? Okay, I'll get on that then. (laughs) So that was something that like literally $3,000 that I had to invest in the home that could have been used for other spheres of my life. So just being agile and nimble. And at least for me, knowing that it's definitely a major goal, but I'm not really kicking myself to do it, let's say in like five years and that's it. And I must do it. It's more of like, I'm doing what I can. And especially now, like I have a fiance and we're still single. So this is the time I feel like I can actually go ahead and like put more into certain things because I know that when a family, when I start a family, things may be different. So these are just things to think about. Yeah, I I totally agree that 
there's so many different ways to do it. And I like your tips and tricks that you've been giving about how you can go about different things. And and you have a great approach with being flexible and being nimble. That's something that it can get really easy when you're trying to approach a goal to make it super regimented and say, I have to make sure that I make this $500 extra payment or, you know, whatever that number is and kind of beat yourself up if you don't do that. Whereas maybe having a baseline and then throwing the extra money when you have it or saying this money that I'm paying for the fuel tank, that's an investment in my home. It's just not going to be reflected in the mortgage payoff this month. But giving yourself that grace is is really important. This is going to be a multi-year process. You know, you're not going to be done with it in the snap of your fingers. So being easy on yourself and, and letting things flow naturally is really going to help keep that motivation throughout the process instead of kind of burning you out in the debt payoff. Yes. And I also have like exercises that I do for visualization. So I literally think about like, what is that day and how am I going to feel when I pay off this mortgage? And my visualization is like, I have a barbecue out in the back. There's a bonfire. I have my mortgage bills in my hands. I'm ripping it up and I'm, you know, giving a toast and tossing it in the air. It falls in the fire and everyone is like cheering and celebrating with me. And that's the visualization that I have and the the record that keeps playing and playing and playing and playing in my mind. So even though it seems like a very far out goal and 20,000 could be literally like a drop in a bucket when it comes to your mortgage, uh, technically, however, I can see it, I can feel it, I can taste it, which makes it so much real and makes me want to like wake up every day and actually work towards accomplishing that. I think your visualization strategy is amazing. And that's so powerful to put yourself in the shoes of your future self and and imagine those emotions. Again, emotions are really important when it comes to money. If you can actually picture the warmth of the fire and the grin on your face and how great it feels to have your family and your friends all around you celebrating, you know, this toast with you to paying off your mortgage, that is a really clear motivate a real real clear end point in your journey that you can keep moving towards. So I I love that. I love that so much. <laughs> in terms of having these different goals that you're separating your money towards, you're putting money towards debt, you're putting money towards saving for a home and saving for travel and retirement, how do you keep that separate? It would be such a jumble to have say $10,000 in one savings account and say, "Oh, but 2,000 is for this and 3,000 is for this and then 5,000 is for this." How do you keep that organized? Yeah. So I actually have like a virtual envelope system and I I literally have like 11 bank accounts and all of my bank accounts have a specific duty and function. And it's either for a particular bill or a particular goal that I have. And for me, it just works really, really well. I would lose pen and paper And the only thing I track on Excel spreadsheet is a bill tracker. Like I created a bill tracker for myself just so I can make sure that I'm constantly hitting all of my bills and making sure no late payments and things are happening like that. But besides that, I just really have everything on my app and my phone. And I could look just literally at a glance and see where I am in all my different financials. So I have a bank account for solely my mortgage payments. So that's exactly how I knew that I had an extra mortgage payment in there last month because it was just sitting in there after I paid my mortgage bill. I was like, oh yeah, that's true. Okay, let's just add that in there. Um, And that's already earmarked. So that really, really helps. And how I'm automating this is I have it directly deposited from my employer, my paycheck directly into these accounts. So I'm not getting involved. Like I think when I get involved, I mess things up sometimes. (laughs) 
<laughs> or I end up under saving or just like over saving. And then I'm like, you know, messed up for the next month or two months. So all of this is automatic. I have a mortgage fund. I have a fund for the fuel tank because I wanted, again, to keep that separate, very separate from everything else going on. I do have a travel fund, a separate bank account. And in terms of like which bank accounts are brick and mortar, which bank accounts are actually online bank, the brick and mortar accounts are like my regular checking. So this is like for everyday expenses and discretionary and fun money and all of that stuff is just in one bank account. And that's usually for like the smaller things I don't need me to really be keeping like super close attention. And then I have a actual a savings account and that's actually my emergency savings account. Again, I like to keep that brick and mortar so that I can literally run to the bank if I have to get something really quickly. Everything else is online and I really love banking with Alibank, A-L-L-Y.com. And uh, I've been banking them like for a really, really long time and I can count on one hand, how many times I've actually had to call them to complain about something. So they have a really great customer service record. And all my other accounts are are there. Um, I'm getting married soon. We're saving up for a wedding. So I have a wedding account. Um, I even have a grocery bill account just because I want to keep my groceries separate because that's where a lot of the spending goes. Like you just go to the grocery store and you come back and you're like, that was an extra zero than I anticipated. Like not necessary. So I think about when I'm thinking about creating a new bank account, it's really about what are the goals that I have? What do I want to track separately? And if it's a bill that like my mortgage is a very important bill, I don't want to miss or mess around with that. And even like a stupid bill, like my cable bill, they always get me with the late charge. So I just created an account for that. So I just have it there and it's just like automatic, but you don't have to have as many as I do, but creating a system for yourself where you can see things clearly makes a lot of sense. Your virtual envelope system is exactly the same system that I use, actually. So I was listening to this, and then you said Ally Bank, which is the bank that I use. So what I really like about having online savings accounts that are separate and earmarked, you can nickname them, and you can say, this is my travel fund, this is my house fund, this is for the wedding, right, is that you'd never get confused about what the money is for. And when it's an online savings account, the the reason I like Allie, you know, not only are they um, very good with their customer service and they hardly ever have problems, but you can log in and see everything there, but it's not so easy to access that money. You don't have a bank branch that you can go to. You can take your money out, of course, but it's a little bit more of a process and that gives you a stop and a pause to say, am I about to spend this money on what the name of the account is or am I about to spend it on something different? So having those buckets that are all named differently and you can open up however many accounts you want. You said you have 11 accounts. I actually think that I have 11 accounts as well. You can- Oh my God, we're twins. It's so funny. I was listening to you. I was nodding and I was like, yeah, this is exactly, you are describing my system to a T, you know? And the other benefit of online savings accounts for that money that you're saving and it's growing or even the money that you're paying your bills with so it is kind of staying around the same amount is you can get a higher interest rate. So a brick and mortar bank is going to give you like a 0.05% interest rate, which is essentially nothing. You're not making any money on your money. And an online savings account could vary anywhere from around 1% to 2%. And that's a really significant increase in money. If you have a five-figure emergency fund account, you're making a couple of hundred dollars a year from that money sitting there, which you need to have it sitting in cash so that you can, you know, use it and access it if you need it. But at the same time, you're 
you know, racking up that interest payments because the bank is saying, hey, thanks for keeping your money sitting there. We'll give you a little kickback, you know, because you're keeping your money at our bank. Yeah, I totally agree. And I actually like the parameters. Like there's a couple like hurdles that you have to jump through. It takes a couple days for you to transfer money from, let's say, your Alibank account to like your brick and mortar. So like you mentioned, it just makes you think a little bit more. Is this something that I really need to take out? And you still have debit card access too, uh, depending on the kind of uh, account that you have. So you can still go to the ATM. But again, with ATM, it's like you're limited to $500 a day. So these are all parameters that you can actually work in your favor if you're trying to make sure you're building on your savings. Absolutely. The way that I have mine set up is I do have a checking account with Ally, but I keep that separate and it doesn't really have much money in it. And if I need to access my emergency fund, for example, I can do an instantaneous transfer to a checking account and then I'd have to grab my debit card and go and take the money out somewhere if I needed it right away. So it's it's one of those things where you, you have those checks and balances on yourself. And the other tip that I just wanted to give while I was thinking about this is for things like recurring bills, when you're doing direct deposit into the account from your paychecks and then you're taking the money out automatically or manually every month, sometimes it's good to keep a buffer amount in those accounts. So my general rule of thumb is three months of whatever that payment is. If I'm paying a student loan, for example, and the payment is $100 a month, I put $50 in each biweekly paycheck and then I take the $100 out a month, but the base amount in the account is always $300. So if something happens where my paycheck is paused by my employer or I'm sick and I can't work. You know, I actually had this happen. I was on disability in 2016 and I was out of work for a month and a half. And so I wasn't putting money into the account, but I was still able to pay my student loans. I didn't have to, while I was in the hospital, I didn't have to call my student loan provider and say, hey, I'm not getting paid. I can't, you know, I have to transfer money over. Can you wait and have some sort of late charge? I didn't have to worry about that. The buffer has been really great for peace of mind and it's not typically you know, three times the amount of your your uh, cable bill or three times the amount of your student loan payment is not typically going to be an amount of money that makes or breaks it, but it really helps you have peace of mind. I love that. I am going to do that like today. I'm going to go and do that like right now because I have definitely been in the position where I did not clock in at work one day and I've learned from it since then, but I did not clock in at work like two two days or something like that. And they did not pay me for those days. So I looked at my paycheck and I was like, there's significant, (laughs) like what's going on here? And it was tight that pay period because I did not have those like months of buffer, you know. And like you said, $100, you know, times three, you can gradually save that and just have that as a safety net. So I love, it's like all these safety nets. I love that. Thank you. That was a great tip. Great. I'm so glad that it can help you. And like I said, it saved my butt a couple of times. So I think it's it's so helpful, especially I have such an aversion to, to fees, to late fees and overdraft fees. Um, if that's ever, you know, something that you've gotten and you're like, oh, I never want that to happen again. Same thing with paying my credit cards. Like I have everything on an automatic payment for my minimum payment. And then I go in and do a manual full balance payment. But that minimum payment automatically, if something happens and it's like I was planning on paying it a week early, but then I get sick or something major happens happens in my life and I don't get to it, there's no late fee charge for that payment. It's just the peace of mind, even though, you know, I'm, I'm planning on staying on top of it. Of course, I always want to pay my bills on time. Life gets in the way sometimes. So I think it's a great way to not have to worry about your money so much. Same thing with the automation thing. When you're when you're taking the thought process and, and the mental strain out of it, it can make money a lot easier and a lot more fun. 
Definitely, definitely. And again, less touch points. So less opportunities for you to go in there and like mess it up or something like that. So totally agree. Exactly. So I'd love to talk about travel. How did travel become a big part of your life when you started having the money to travel and deciding to make that a priority? I would say that my progression was I would go to Haiti every summer traveling with my family. But then in high school, it kind of became uncool. I got a job. I got a boyfriend. So I was just like not doing, you know, not wanting to travel anymore. But then college came around and now you have spring break trips and study abroad programs. And this was around the recession. And I was just having a really, really hard time getting funding. And I even asked my mom, I was like, mom, can, can I like go to France for the summer? And she said, of course, she'll do whatever she can. My actually, my financial aid would not cover it. So it would actually be out of pocket. And she, she offered to help me pay for it. But the backstory is that we were losing our home to foreclosure. So I had this super guilty feeling. I'm like, my mom would love to help me. And I can't take money like, you know, we don't even have this money to even pay our mortgage. So I felt really bad and I decided not to do it. However, I made a promise to myself that as soon as I have the finances, I have a quote unquote like big girl job and more financially stable that I will go and start to save for travel, prioritize it and make it happen. And that's exactly what I did. And in college and undergrad, and uh, college I would say, and graduate school, I watched a lot of my friends travel. I had a lot of fear of missing out. It really made me appreciate all the times that I could have traveled as like, as like in high school. And I kind of like, you know, scoffed at it or laughed at it. And I really realized, I was like, I don't wanna feel this way again. So let me be as creative as possible to make it happen. So once I got my first job as a financial analyst, I just started with $25 every single pay period because again, my priority was my debt, but I realized that there's budget travel, there's like hostels and like other things that cost less that I can, you know, save up money for. So I was able to save enough to afford a trip to Paris in 2014 was my first trip. It was a solo adventure. And I even added a day trip to Brussels and I enjoyed it so much. It just opened up my eyes and I said, there's no way that I'm going to go back home and never do this again. So I just been traveling ever since. And I think like every year before, you know, the pandemic, I was like adding more destinations to my list every single year. I was like pushing it a little bit, pushing it a little bit. And I have a full time job. So there are definitely constraints when it comes to time. But I feel like as long as you're creative, you could definitely find uh, a way. And the last thing I would say, what I really fell in love with when it came to travel was gamifying cheap flights. So I realized that I love the adventure of steel, of like getting a steal. Like I love that. I love sitting down in a plane and knowing that this person next to me paid three, four times as much as I did because they didn't know what I know. (laughs) So it was just really fun. Like I just really, even for now, I'm like smiling now because it's like so much fun for me to be able to say, okay, even though I have, let's say, X amount of money for the year for travel, let me see if I can make this stretch for two, three trips instead of one big trip uh, just by how wisely I'm spending my money. 
That's a really great point that there's multiple ways to make sure that you can travel a lot, even if you don't have a lot of money. One of them is budget travel. One of them is travel hacking, you know, getting those cheap flights, getting credit cards that have rewards points so you can take free trips. And then the other is, of course, saving consistently so that you have the money to be able to go on trips and then portioning that out over maybe a couple of different trips instead of going on one big trip. So tell me how that works with having a full-time job and still being able to travel a lot. How do you make it work? How do you find time to do it? And how do you balance it with your, your work and your travel? Yeah, I would say the first thing I recommend is really understanding your role and also the times when you're needed to be in the office. And this is allowing you to figure out when are the pockets of time where it's okay that I'm not in the office and no one's really going to care, or it's like not that big of a deal that I'm not in the office. So for me and my job, my job is very cyclical. So there are three times in the year where I'm absolutely needed in the office. And the other three times of the year, I plan my trips around that. So those are more of my like lengthier trips, again, based on the parameters of my job. I also take a lot advantage of uh, weekend travel as well. I have done a lot of like international uh, weekend travel on the holidays, like when you have a long weekend. So long weekend travel is also like, that's a great time. I actually have done this so many times that I know exactly the holidays I look for. So Martin Luther King weekend, you'll find a wonderful deals in January. Again, it's cold in the Northeast in New York City. So most people don't really wanna travel. That's when I'm gonna travel because no one's doing it. So it's cheaper. So even like uh, Valentine's Day weekend, which actually falls on President's Day, if you plan ahead of time, like six to nine months ahead of time, you can find really, really great uh, flight deals. And even things like Thanksgiving, that could be a really good time to find deals. And I think in terms of my travel style, I think I'm actually moving a little bit more away from this because now I have like a fiance and we have to kind of make decisions more together. But before I would just have the time and just hop on whatever deal I saw. As long as the deal was exciting, it was a place that I felt safe and I wanted to explore, I would let the deal dictate where I was going. Now that I have a fiance and we're starting a family, I'm more of like, babe, where do you wanna go? Let's make a short list and then we can like see what deals pop up from these destinations. So uh, yeah, these are some of the things that I've done which have really helped me to travel. But again, I think it starts with understanding when you're needed in the office and when you're not needed and making sure you're taking time off during those times. And do you work remotely while you're traveling or are you taking vacation days? Mostly it's actually taking vacation days and I actually negotiated working from working remotely in over the past year. So that's something I've had my job maybe for six years and it's only in the last uh, last year I was able or last two years. Maybe I was able to negotiate working remotely two days a week. If it happens to fall on a Friday, I may swing it. I may not. I'm, you know, I may. But usually I just prefer to just take time off and just not be stuck on the computer. And I think that's the big realization for me from working remotely during the pandemic is that when you're working remotely at home, you're constantly your mind is on the computer. Your focus is on the computer. You know, you, you know, go and do like say make lunch and then you have to come back right on the computer. So I rather just take time off and just enjoy not having to at least be accessible for work when I can. 
and be able to disconnect, right? I think that's yes. that's what's so important about travel is that it gives us an opportunity to take a break from what our everyday nine to five, you know, schedule is and experience new things. So I, th- I think that's really important to disconnect and people are tempted even when they take vacation days to check their phone or to respond to emails or whatever. My MO when I was in a nine to five was to say, I'm not going to have cell service at all. If you need something, call somebody else. <laughs> and I would put somebody else's phone number. A lot of people, you know, out of office, oh, well, you can call me on my cell. I may or may not answer. I'll be checking my emails at night, whatever. I'm like, no cell service. I'm going to be out of the country. Talk to my other guy over here. It's not my job anymore. You know, and I think that's that's a great way to to keep your travel pure. Right. And 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 separate. And like that experience that that is what you're looking for. You don't want it to be like this mishmash of working a little bit and traveling a little bit. Right. Yes. But I would say, let's say if you have a weekend trip planned or let's say a weekend extended trip planned, you can still arrive at a destination on Friday, work that day in your hotel room at coffee shops And then when you log off at five, you're at your destination already. So you can just start exploring. So there are like there are opportunities where I feel like I would do that. But if I'm just ready to like disconnect, like right, if if I'm feeling burnout, like I'm burnt out right now, I'm like, I just, okay, goodbye. I'll see you guys in a week or two. Um, One of my big trips last year is I went to China and I did not make any commitments. I said, I'm going to, I made sure everything was wrapped up at work that you will not be able to reach me at all. I will not be checking email. I don't even think Outlook is like allowed in China. So it was just very clear. And I had a wonderful 10 days. And when I got back, you know, it was a very gradual, like it was fine. A transition was really fine. Yeah, that's great to hear. Actually, what you were saying about the, you know, arriving and working on Friday strategy is something that I used to do on my return. So rather than taking a day off on my way back, I would usually book a flight in the morning that would, if I was traveling domestically, a flight in the morning that was coming back. And I did a lot of work travel as well. So this would work when I was traveling for my job or traveling personally. And I would work in the airport. I would work on the plane. I would get in my car and drive to my office and finish my work day. It was a way for me to, you know, if if I'm traveling cross country or something like that, you know, that's like a six hour flight. If I'm traveling, you know, up and down, you know, north, south, that would be like four hours. So that was like a good chunk of time for me to be able to get my work done. And at the end of the day, I could put in some FaceTime at the office too. And if you work a little bit later, you make up the travel time from the airport to the office. So that's kind of a trick that I used to be able to extend that so that the day before wasn't this like hectic travel day. It wasn't really vacation time, but I was still taking the vacation time off or it was the the weekend that I could have been using to travel uh, and just kind of make that a little bit uh, of a transition between travel and work in the same day. I love it. The creativity. It's all about like really being creative. That's what I found for me is like the knack when it comes to personal finance and also time management is just being creative with your time. Be willing to do sometimes like I would literally get 6 a.m. flights sometimes and do the things that people don't want to do because, you know, for whatever reason, it's not convenient. So that's the things that I want to do, because, again, I have some constraints that I have to live with. So, yeah, I think creative creativity is one of the best things to think about when you're trying to fit all these things into your life. And you wrote a book about this, right? It's called Traveling with a Full Time Job. Tell me a little bit about this book. Yes. Okay. So this is actually my third book. And my last book was about affording travel. That, that's actually the title of the book. It's called Affording Travel. And that book focuses on money, like step by step, how to save for travel. 
But at the other side of the coin is time. Time is also one of the biggest hindrances that folks complain about, especially if you have a full-time job. So I figured that, you know what, let me share what I know, what I've done, the strategies that has worked for me. But I also didn't want to be a singular in my book. So I've enlisted many, many other folks who are avid travelers, but who also have full-time jobs. And we talk all about remote work, maybe even negotiating remote work as an option, something that I have done. Folks talk about weekend travel. We have physicians, we have engineers, we have teachers. So there's a lot of different strategies in that book, again, to show folks that it is possible being creative and also understanding that not everybody wants to quit their job to travel the world and you don't necessarily have to. So this is going to provide tips, strategies, and lots of encouragement. That's great. And you mentioned that you also wrote a book about affording travel. So what advice would you give to someone who says, I really want to travel, but I feel like I have all these competing financial commitments. How can that person who values travel get more in alignment with saving the money for travel as well as still pursuing their financial freedom? Yes. So I think there's a lot of mindset shift work that needs to happen. A lot of times folks feel that for me to be saving for something like a vacation, they think I need several thousand dollars to have a vacation, which is not true. And so they think that they need to save uh, so much money, like Boku money for them to actually feel like they're making progress when it comes to saving for travel. And for me, I'm always saying that it doesn't really matter like how much you're saving because at the end of the day, I went to Paris for that week on $25 every pay period. What matters is developing habits that make it consistent that you can have travel be a line item in your budget. So one of the things that I teach in the book is seeing travel as a recurring bill. So similar to your Netflix, your phone bill and everything else that you prioritize on a day-to-day basis, What would life look like if you actually prioritize travel just as the other things? So travel is a line item in my budget, has its own bank account like we talked about. It's automated as well. And it's kind of a set it and forget it thing that I do every single year. So I think the mindset shifts, again, are like one of the biggest pieces. And once you're ready and you feel like, okay, I can do this and I really want to do this, carving out the time, carving out the funds to make it happen will actually, you'll be able to see all the savings that you've done. Again, $25 can get you a long way at the end of the year. It's not something to just laugh at and say, oh, that's, that's not enough, you know? I'd love to give people a look into how this actually looks in your life. So do you mind telling me about, you know, I know this year we can't really travel given the global pandemic that's going on. But if we look at last year, tell me about your trips and and what kind of travel you did and how you fit that in to work with your full time job. Sure. So last year, I would say my big trip would be the 10 day trip to China, which was very exciting. It's interesting because I actually booked that trip the year prior, a full year prior, and I actually found a really great deal. It's through a site that I really love. It's called travelsu.com. And every single Wednesday, and we're actually recording on a Wednesday, they send out a list of like their top 20 deals. So I just look, you know, peruse through that guide every single Wednesday. And I saw this deal for $299 to, to China. Wow. And I said, whoa, what scam is this? And why is TravelZoo like giving a stamp of approval? Like I love TravelZoo. Why would they, you know, send some spam in this newsletter? So I call them. Also, 
fun fact, don't ever believe something is a scam. Like, I feel like you should always be like, uh, you know, be critical, but do your due diligence. But things like 299 to, uh, to China do exist. So I'm all for opportunities to save. So I called the company and I was like, hey, this is a scam. What's going on? And they're like, no, the Chinese government wants to subsidize trips and they're really promoting tourism. So you can do it. So I said, okay, great. So I actually booked it in 2018 for the trip in 2019. And because I had so long, and this is very rare, it's not something that I do, you know, I don't book trips a year in advance, but I do book trips six to nine months in advance. And the reason why is because there's a study out that says that airlines change prices about 60 plus times a year. So the airlines are fluctuating. These flight prices are fluctuating. So my goal is always to get it as cheaply as, you know, as cheaply as possible because I don't really value the airline experience. Like as long as I have water, if you could feed me, that'd be great. But if after that, like just get me there safely so I can enjoy my experience when I'm actually on the ground. So I knew a year ahead of time that I was going to go to China and I put the time request. It was 10 days. So I had to think through, I'm taking 10 days and I actually have more vacation days than 10 days, which I'm pretty lucky about. But let's say if you had 10 days, that's your whole year's worth of vacation in one trip. So when I am doing bigger trips like this, I'm very conscious. I'm like, what's my balance? How many do I have left? Do I have a couple of days for like, you know, incidentals or things like that, or just personal days. So I, I realized I had enough days. I took the time off and I made sure like everyone ahead of time knew my work was all wrapped up before I went. And then I went on that trip. So that's really how I actually planned it out. And it was actually a tour. So everything was pretty much done for me. I had tour guides, I had hotels, all of that was really, really nice. But in terms of the, the saving for it, actually paying for the trip, that 299 initial cost was it's like, it was like a no brainer. And I had the money in the account because again, I have a travel fund, it's automated. There's always money, every pay period going inside of that. Now, where the the more tricky part is trying to figure out your budget for when you're actually during that time when I'm in China. And what I try to do is I look at resources like budgetyourtrip.com and they will provide you with how much things cost a destination from like eggs or like, you know, a bottle of wine. So they give you all these like data and you can go ahead and start piecing your daily spend together. And my goal, I think my goal was to spend like, I think we saved about $1,800 per person because we had heard that China was fairly affordable, uh, but we also wanted to have enough that we didn't feel like we were running out of money as well. And we actually came under that. We spent uh, a lot less than that, which was really, really exciting. Uh, But we did have that funds, like um, $1,800 in our bank account. We had that when we went to China and we actually uh, took a lot of it out because you actually have to have cash when you go to a place like China. So that's really like how I planned that trip. Um, And that's one of like the bigger trips, which I think is usually sometimes harder to plan. Yeah, that actually just made me think when you were you were saying uh, the amount of money that you saved for the trip, the way that we budget for our trips, my partner and I budget for our trips is we get a deal. So either we travel hack um, or we get a really cheap flight. And then typically we set our budget based on what it would have cost. So that's that's kind of a way that I like to kind of multiply my experience. But we try to get our hotels or our flights for free or a highly discounted price. So we went to Hawaii for 10 days and we flew and stayed for free. And so we said we can have like a several thousand dollar budget 
And that wouldn't even be what the cost of the flights and the hotels would have been. So we kind of gave ourselves this budget and saying, you know, this is what it would have just cost us to get here. But instead, we can splurge on experiences. We can go on a catamaran cruise and we can go scuba diving and we can go take a horseback ride through Kualoa Valley, which is where they've shot Jurassic Park and all these beautiful, you know, films in Hawaii. And that was a way for us to give ourselves even like a splurge budget because I'm so tempted as someone who likes to save money to go on like the bare bones like shoestring budget type of travel um, but when you can find these deals I think it's a great way to give yourself permission to spend money on experiences yeah that's a wonderful thing and I actually don't do that because I'm just like oh I saved so it just goes to like a different area different pot but like you said capture your savings and use that savings to really fulfill all of your travel experience that you actually want to have when you're there. So I think that's uh, very good. But I also think it's important to kind of know what the spend will be like as well, because I definitely have gone on trips where I underthought and I didn't have enough money. Uh, But I also would say that I think for me, what I used to do in the past was that I would use a lot of credit cards when I'm on my trips. And then I would come home to this bill that it was like, ugh, I don't want to look at this bill, even though I maybe I had the funds or whatever the case may be. But what I try to do now when I'm traveling is I try to use debit as much as possible so that I could actually keep a daily tab on my spending. And then when I come back home, it's like an effortless, like I don't have to do anything else. I also couple that because these are also like small expenses, like, you know, maybe a coffee here or there, maybe a little uh, top bus or something like that. But I do book all of my like airfare and my hotels and large expenses like your tours or your day trips, or your car rentals on the credit card. So again, when I'm on the ground, I don't have to be pulling out my wallet for every single transaction. And I can also gain the points and miles as well. Exactly. Something that I also learned as I started travel hacking is that by putting those larger expenses on a new travel card, potentially, you can actually use your vacation to get you another vacation. It's it's really cool the way that it can kind of work. But I totally understand the feeling as well of you come back and even though you have the money saved, you see that you have, you know, spent over a period of maybe 10 days where you wouldn't spend $1,500 or something per person, you've spent that amount of money. It's like, ooh, you know, you kind of have that emotional reaction to to spending the money that you've saved, particularly for that purpose. So I, I definitely like how you manage that emotion around it. And, and instead of kind of taking the travel and making it feel a little negative or a little bit like resistance towards spending the money on travel, you make it easy by using your debit card. I think that's a great idea. Yes, absolutely. My next question is, you're an author, a freelance writer, a blogger, a podcaster, a course creator, a workshop host, you have a membership site. How do you balance all of this uh, as well as having a nine to five job? Yes. Okay. That sounds like a lot. That definitely made it sound like so much. Um, I would say that I focus on a handful of projects, usually two at a time. So if I'm looking critically at what I'm doing right now, right now I have taken a break from the podcast, but I'm working on a book. So I pick and choose what are the big projects that I'm doing. Um, During the pandemic, I also took a break from writing the blog so that I can launch a membership site. 
So, uh, and also I've been doing this for five years, so I can create something like in year three of my journey and it's still be out there and I'm still creating new things as well. So I kind of like build on what I've been creating over the past five years. But a lot of what I do is I focus on again, one to two things that I'm working on at a time. And then I take a break from whatever else is not necessarily priority. And I've found that when it comes to writing books is that there's only so many words I have in my brain in one day and I have to pick and choose how those words are gonna come out. Do I wanna come out on a blog or do I wanna work on the book? And for me, I just discovered that I love books as a monetization model. I also really enjoy being an author and writing and just having that long form content. And I've been flexing my blogging muscles again for five years. So the next transition was just to become an author and just package it in a little bit of a different way. When it came to my courses, I thought about my course. I was thinking about, okay, like what's the next step from my blog? I really wanted to get folks okay there because I can't really explain to you budgeting in like 10 blog posts. Like who's going to actually have that attention span to read 10 blog posts. So then a course is a good option to kind of package everything again into a journey. However, I've discovered that like, especially my audience, they prefer to have workshops where we focus on one thing for one to two hours and then they move on. And I'm not promising them the entire kitchen sink here. I'm promising them one transformation. Let's get you from what point A to point B and then they feel equipped that they can go on their journey. So I've done a lot of experimenting, so I realize that I prefer workshops over courses for that, and my failed course led me to write the book, Affording Travel. So I kind of just try things, and then depending on how it lands, I may change it up a little bit, or I may think about it a little bit differently, and I take breaks. I take frequent breaks so that I'm not burning my uh, creativity out all at once. I think that's really important as well because all of these things that you do are creative, right? And and anybody who does creative work knows that there's only so much that you can do until you need to refill, you know, and recover and regenerate that creativity to be able to put out more content into the world. So that's something that I'm still learning, you know, as, as someone who just transitioned into full-time entrepreneurship, my last job was not creative in any way. It was very analytical, moving things from over here to over here and, and doing things like calculations. So now when I get to put all of my creative energy into something, it's really exciting. But I'm also tempted, and I think a lot of people are, to see someone like you and they're like, wow, Danielle does all this stuff. She probably does it all at once. She's probably writing that book in the morning and then she records a podcast and then she goes to work. And then when she comes back, she's making a course and then she's doing a workshop at night. And, you know, it, it, can, it can seem <laughs> so easy to look at someone who has five years of experience and, the, you know, you have a blog and you have a successful podcast and you have all of this kind of backlog of creative work, but realize that it didn't all happen overnight. And so that you're staggering your projects and you're saying, okay, I'm going to focus on this one thing or these two things at one time instead of all, you know, six or 10 different projects that I have that I want to work on. So I'm really glad that you shared that. That's definitely something that I can learn more from and it helps your work be better quality when you're focused specifically on one or two things instead of maybe moving a millimeter in a million directions, you can actually just focus and go a mile in one direction. Yeah, and I just want to also add that for the first three years of me being a blogger, my sole goal was to just create one blog post a year. 
oh, sorry, one blog post a month. Oh, wait, one blog post a day. Sorry. <laughs> no, one blog post every week. I'm going to say that again. Okay, that's sorry. Okay. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> okay, that's, that's hilarious. Uh, we can definitely keep that in because that's funny. <laughs> so my first three years as a blogger was, my goal was to create one new blog post per week. And that was it because I knew that I had a full time job. I knew that and I could also at the end of the week, I have something to show. Like I worked on this creative project for the entire week and here it is. And I was really proud. And I actually released my blog post on Friday because I know that how rewarding it is to have something to share with the world on Fridays. That's just a mental thing that I do. That was my first three years. And then I said, you know what? I really want to do the podcast. And I introduced the podcast off of that, right? So that was like my next step. But the podcast is still in line with what my brand is all about. It's all about affordable travel and personal finance. So I didn't do an, I didn't create a new thing. I just added a new medium to what I was already creating. And then I worked on courses. So the courses allowed me to take let's say five blog posts and really figure out what's the step-by-step system that I'm talking about in this blog post to offer transformation. And then once I figured out, wow, I, there's a step-by-step, I started to write nonfiction books because nonfiction books are all about step-by-step. So it was a very gradual transition and everything new that I start, it's all about being consistent So I, you know, the podcast, I'm very consistent. I have a schedule. I want to make sure I get that before, let's say I jump into YouTube. I'm not going to jump into YouTube if I haven't mastered the podcast yet. But I think having one goal that you want to accomplish creatively a week, especially if you have a full-time job, is a lot to ask. But if you can nail that, you're golden. Yeah. And I think consistency, that kind of wraps really nicely into how we do things with our money too. It's about making sure that you don't have to think about it. You are habitualizing these activities, whether you're writing or whether you're saving money for travel, right? Whether you're splitting your paycheck up into different buckets or you're deciding if you're working on the podcast this month or you're working on the blog this month. So I can see how that really goes back into the habits that you have in your life and the way that you manage your time and your money. One last thing I wanted to just ask you about quickly was financial independence. Are you on the path to financial independence or early retirement? And what is your plan for that? Yes, I definitely think that I am slow fire, really slow fire, just like taking my time here, um, enjoying life in the meantime. And I see for me phase one as working on paying off my mortgage. So that for me is like the biggest the biggest for me uh, goal that I have when it comes to fire. And I would love to retire down in Florida. So leave the Northeast behind. That is definitely a goal that I have of mine. And in terms of like figures, I've been using like the traditional 25 times, actually my current salary, which is uh, definitely what I've been using. I'm like, okay, that's, that's a pretty, that's a lot to save and lots to invest and lots to work on. But again, my, my approach is a, very, uh, very slow and gradual. And again, phasing it, looking at phases and phase one is just working hard to get the mortgage out of, uh, out of my hair. 
listening to your story and hearing your plans for slow fire really just demonstrates how the way that you approach your life and you've integrated travel into your life and you've made sure that your spending based on your values means that you don't have to do this death march to fi which we've kind of heard about from people who you know did the grind really really hard and didn't spend money on the things that they wanted to and weren't able to necessarily enjoy the time that they were working towards fire because they were so singularly focused on that one goal but you've been able to balance those things that you care about in your life and that's not just work and it's not just travel you know you're you're not solely focused on paying off your mortgage you're pursuing everything at a slower pace so that you can have more balance and enjoyment on the journey and i I love hearing that from you because it seems like you have really cracked the code here to to making things that a lot of people think are mutually exclusive, like paying off debt and investing at the same time or traveling and having a full time job. You've you've been able to incorporate all of those and you're having a pursuit of fire on top of that. So it's super inspiring to hear your story. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I think what's important for me is I could, I'm looking back and I'm like, wow, over the last 10 years, look at all the things that I've done, you know? And that for me is really, is really, really important. So as I think about my journey to financial independence, I want to, again, look back at it being a journey and still feeling like I tried as many things as possible. I had a lot of fun. I was still on task. And I'm excited. I'm super excited. I still think that if you're able to retire before 65 and be independent and financially independent, it's great, you know, like just going against the grain. But again, everyone's path looks very different and just really owning your path and being confident and happy in what you're doing and just your progress that you've made so far. That's great. I'd like to move on to rapid fire style questions if you're ready for that. Yeah, sounds great. What does freedom mean to you? Freedom means the ability for me to make choices on my own terms. And what would you do if you could retire right now? I would retire by a lake or a body of water. I would have, a, I would say, a fairly small place, cozy place. And I would spend a lot of time writing. I would be writing new books, diving into fiction, because I feel like that's challenging for me. <laughs> But trying to dive into fiction and if this was like in a non-pandemic world, you know, taking a lot of time to travel and explore and use my experiences as like, uh, you know, opportunities to create content in my books and all the, the things I do. What would you do if you could never retire? Wow, that would be fairly depressing for me. <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm fairly lazy, to be honest. I'm fairly like, oh, you know. I don't but, believe it. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I think so. But if I couldn't retire, I would want to share with the world why that was and like why I couldn't do that and why I couldn't, like what happened, like not necessarily what went wrong, but what happened my journey that made retirement not an option for me and hoping that by sharing my story that I would empower folks and just like, you know, offer some insights so that folks could, could actually do it. Yeah. I, that's, I think that's why I have my blog is because I just want to empower folks. I want to share my story, be transparent and, you know, empower others. So I would definitely do that same thing if I couldn't retire. 
Do you see yourself, if you, in the scenario where you couldn't retire, working the same job that you're working and incorporating travel in the same way? Or is there something that you would change uh, in terms of the balance of the time that you spend on different things? Oh, I would hope if I couldn't, I feel like the, it would be, it would really be determined by like what would be holding me back from not retiring. Like, and I also think that when you have like a nine to five job, you become used to that salary and then all your costs reflect that salary. So that's a hard question to ask. I don't. Okay. Say that question again. One more time. If you could ask it to me again. Sure, sure. So if if we lived in a world where retirement didn't exist and you had to find something that you would do for the rest of your life because you couldn't retire, would you choose a different career path? Would you uh, have a different balance between how much you traveled and how much you worked? What would that look like for you? Okay, so I would definitely pursue another career path because again I'm not retiring and this is like you know I want to do a career that I can sustain and that fulfills me so I would probably move into like writing and coaching and working one-on-one with folks I think that would be bring me a lot of fulfillment and it would be something that I'm working but it doesn't necessarily feel like intensive like heavy duty nine to five work if that makes sense and if you could go back in time and give a piece of financial or lifestyle advice to yourself in your early 20s, what would it be? I would say to not give up on budgeting. One of the things for me when I bought my house and I was all responsible for all the years before that, and then I bought my house and I was like, oh, I don't need this budget anymore. And I step like I really set myself back uh, a lot in that like six month period of abandoning my budget. So I would say to really keep your budget close and just because you accomplish a really big goal doesn't mean that you take your foot off the gas pedal. It means that, you know, you, you have momentum. So use that momentum to fuel you forward. I would say budgeting for sure would be something that I would, uh, encourage myself to really take seriously. And again, like just because you accomplish something doesn't mean that you kind of move on that quick and you forget everything and all the struggle that you went through for it. Gratitude also is really important. You know, understand where you where you came from and, and where you are and that let that help you make decisions moving forward. Thank you, Danielle. Where can everyone go online to find out more about you? Yeah, uh, you can connect with me over at thoughtcard.com. That's my affordable travel and personal finance blog. I also have a podcast called The Thought Card Podcast. You can also find me on social media. I am at The Thought Card on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Pretty active on all of them, especially Twitter. So love to connect with you on Twitter. And uh, the resources we mentioned, the books that I have, uh, the first one is Affording Travel, Saving Strategies for Financially Savvy Travelers, and the new one coming out in September is Traveling with a Full-Time Job. All right. And we will link to both of those in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for being here with me, Danielle. Thank you so much. To check out the show notes for this episode, which includes links to resources mentioned in today's interview and where you can go to learn more about Danielle, go to 20free.co slash episode 48. I want this to be more than just a podcast for listening to, so I'm making it a do-cast where you're getting information from the podcast that you can take action on to create real outcomes in your life. I call these power moves. If you implement even one of these tactics into your life, you're taking a powerful step towards finding your freedom. What are some power moves we learned from this conversation? Here are six. Power move number one, 
Calculate how much your debt is costing you. Do you know how much your debt is costing you on a daily, weekly, monthly, or yearly basis? Look up how much interest your debt accrues every day, and you might be more motivated to pay it off. When Danielle found out that her debt was costing her $10.10 every day, she was inspired to take action and pay down her debt as quickly as possible. You can also use your daily interest rate to track your progress towards paying off your debt because the interest will go down as your principal balance decreases. Power move number two, use emotions around money to your advantage. Often, we hear that emotions and money don't mix. Spending emotionally can waste money and investing or divesting emotionally can lead to huge losses. However, there are ways you can use your emotions around money to your advantage. Danielle says that whenever she starts to feel some type of emotion around money, she uses it as a sign that she's onto something that she needs to take action on. She felt anger around her student loan balance and transformed that anger into action to pay off $63,000 of student loans in four years. Now, when she thinks about her mortgage, she feels happy thinking about the freedom she could have in the future when she pays it off. Use your emotions as a guide and allow them to motivate you to reach your money goals. Power move number three, balance multiple savings goals. Most of us have more than one savings goal at a time. Maybe you want to pay off your debt, but you're also saving for a house and a wedding. Oh yeah, and it would be cool to invest a little too. It could feel like there's never enough money to reach multiple goals at once, but you just have to pace yourself. Danielle chose to balance her savings goals of paying off her debt and saving for a house down payment. That way, she knew that she was making progress on both of her largest goals at the same time. I would especially recommend that you make investing a priority even while you're saving for other goals. The power of compound interest will help you earn more money over time, and the earlier you start investing, the longer your money has to multiply and grow. Power move number four, treat travel like a recurring bill. Want to make travel a priority in your life? You can make sure that you save for it every time you get a paycheck by treating it like a recurring bill, just like Netflix or utilities. It doesn't matter how much you're saving. It matters that you develop the habits that make travel a consistent line item in your budget. Danielle also reminds us that you don't need as much as you think for travel. She started traveling by saving just $25 per paycheck and used that money to take her first trip to Paris. Power move number five, set up a virtual envelope system. The cash envelope system keeps you on budget by helping you earmark the cash you have in each budget category. A virtual envelope system works similarly by creating buckets for different expenses and savings goals. This is done by creating different bank accounts, each with a specific duty. Then, automatically direct depositing a certain amount each pay period into each bank account in order to save for your goals or bills. Danielle and I were surprised to find out that we both use a nearly identical virtual envelope system. I recommend that you also keep a buffer of three months of expenses in the bill accounts so that your auto payments don't lead to an overdraft if there's an interruption with your direct deposit. Power move number six understand your role and when you can be out of office. If you're trying to travel with a full-time job, it can feel hard to find the time. 
Danielle shares that the best way to travel is to understand your role. Know when you need to be in the office and when it's less important for you to be in the office so you could take time off. Danielle's job is very cyclical, so there are three times of the year where she really needs to be in the office. Therefore, she schedules her travel around those times. She also takes advantage of holiday weekends, especially less popular travel weekends like Martin Luther King weekend or President's Day weekend. That is the sixth and final power move from my conversation with Danielle Desir from The Thought Card. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you're subscribed to the Find Your Freedom podcast on whatever app you're using to listen to this episode. Do me a favor and also leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Go to 20free.co slash iTunes to be redirected to the page on Apple Podcasts where you can leave your rating and review. I really appreciate it. If you think this episode would help someone you know, please share it with a friend. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Find Your Freedom podcast. My name is Becky. You can connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at 20freeco and sign up for free resources and email updates at www.20free.co. That's the word 20, F-R-E-E dot C-O. I'll talk to you next week on another episode of the Find Your Freedom podcast.